Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Alina's sitting here eating an ice cream, aren't you? Oh yes, and it's the best ice cream in the world. And I'm really excited because Ryan McNutt is back. Do not be fooled by the fact that this awesome archaeologist historian sounds like he does. He's, he's got a big fiery red beard and some link to this topic, surely, because we are going to discuss why Braveheart is rubbish, aren't we, Ryan? Yeah, um, through the, I'm going to weave in and out of kind of historical background and then hit some of the, the issues with Braveheart and the myths. Um, Scottish history is it's something I've got a background in. It was actually my first love. Uh, the topic of my PhD dissertation um, was warfare in Scotland from 1296 to 1650. Um, so I've got a pretty good background in medievalism. I mean, uh, as long as if we didn't need any motivation to beat down the anti-Semitic uh, chauvinist shitbag that is Mel Gibson in the first place, who loves to go around making films about how mean the English are. Um, but we're going to do it historically and in a grown-up fashion, aren't we? Yeah, as kind as, of. As, as <laughs> grown-up as, grown as you both can, basically. Well, Ryan was doing his notes and he was like, how much can I curse? Because it's just going to be necessary at some stage. <laughs> Do it. Do right. it. Do all the cursing. Let's start. Let's just blow everyone's mind from the very beginning, Ryan. There were no kilts. Yes. Uh, during the 13th century, at the time that Braveheart is set, nobody in Scotland is wearing kilts. Nobody in Scotland is wearing kilts at all until 1594, which is where we have the first concrete historical reference to something that can be identified as a kilt. There might be some kind of bits and pieces that may be kilts as far back as maybe the kind of 1570s, but it's really the late 16th century when kilts uh, are really part of any kind of Scottish dress or Scottish culture. And even in that context, it's in the Geltac. It's the Western Highlands and Islands, uh, the Northeast, the Gaelic-speaking Highland areas. Um, there's also no blue face paint either really ever. That's at best maybe a first century AD. Um, That's like a Celt thing, right? Yeah, it's basically, yeah, it's a Celt uh, possibly picked thing. Um, there's also no evidence whatsoever of just prima noctis, um, the rite of first night. 
that there's lots of historians that debate this, but it seems pretty clearly that this may be at best a Victorian myth um, based on tax. Um, there's also no great Highland bagpipes um, at the time uh, that Braveheart is set. Um, they also weren't ever banned in the 13th century or the 18th century. And disappointingly for arms and armor collectors, there are no two-handed swords of the sort wielded by Mel Gibson either. Um, at best, you've got an oak shot uh, type 13A, uh, which is kind of a fairly largest um, two and a half hand or one and a half handed, one handed war sword, but it's nothing like the kind of claymore. Those are also largely 16th century creations, and they're really developed in response to pikes and cutting open pike blocks. Um, right. So that's already blown most of the film out of the water. Brilliant. <laughs> I've okay. Got to say, Go I've got to say, don't hate me. <laughs> I've never seen this film in my life. Just consider yourself lucky, really. No. I did actually go back and watch it to just to refresh my memory of some of the some of the occurrences um, and some of the things that became kind of immediately apparent. Um, the timeline is way off um, for one thing. I think it, it kind of starts with Mel Gibson or the young William Wallace scene kind of. Who still nice. looks 45, even in when he's supposed to be <laughs> playing like a 20 year old. Yeah. Bye. This is kind of thing where he comes across his um, Scottish nobles being hung in a barn. Um, in the kind of historical timeline, Edward has no control or even real input into Scotland at that point. Um, the story of Braveheart, which they don't really cover too much, really starts in 1286. Um, and it starts because of somebody who seems to have a difficulty keeping it in his trousers. Um, at <laughs> it doesn't point, everything in history start yeah. there. Um, it is Alexander III, um, mm -hmm. who is the current King of Scotland um, on the night of the 18th of March, um, 12, 18, 1286, sorry, 1286. He decides that he's going to visit his new young second wife, uh, Yolanda de Drew. She's 23. He's, 44, which actually isn't too bad of an age range for medieval marriages. Um, it's incredibly nasty weather. Alexander III is in Edinburgh at Edinburgh Castle. Um, his young queen is in Kingorn Castle in Fife, which is across the, uh, the Firth of Forth from Edinburgh, the Scottish Sea. Um, and apparently Alex had a reputation for not really being able to keep it in his pants. The Chronicle of Lanarkost, which is a contemporary account, says, quote, he used to never forbear on account of season nor storm, nor for perils of flood or rocky cliffs, but would visit none too credibly nuns or matrons, virgins or widows, as a fancy seized him, sometimes in disguise. So in this vein, um, he goes to visit his young queen um, in an incredible storm. He manages to cross the Firth of Forth on a ferry, fine, but on horseback on his way to Kingorn, he becomes separated from his small party and his horse throws him. And he was found dead on a beach the next day with a broken neck. So, Ouch. Yeah, King is dead. Um, it's, it's fine, though. It's 
it's okay. Um, he's got an heir. He's got a granddaughter in Norway who is his designated heir. Um, Yolanda also says that she's pregnant, so the community of the realm gathers, and they appoint six regents from the great and want-to-be-greater aristocracy. They're called the Guardians of Scotland, which is a term that will become a bit important later. Yolanda, unfortunately, has a stillborn child. There's a few kind of particularly nasty fucks um, in the Chronicles that assert that the whole thing was a fake pregnancy, which doesn't seem to be borne out and is a fairly kind of nasty assertion to make. Um, but those great and want to be greater families as a result of her having a stillborn child start jostling for power. Um, Robert Bruce, who is the later King Robert's grandfather, starts to kick off uh, rebellion, essentially power grabs, trying to control territory, um, jostling for power and prestige. Um, it's not until about 1290 that Margaret, who is now seven, embarks for Scotland from Norway. But unfortunately, in the journey over, in September, she takes ill and she dies in Orkney. Um, it's a personal tragedy as the death of a kid pretty much always is. Mm. But it's also a national one because essentially all the Scottish nobles go bug fuck, for lack of a better term. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, there's no clear claimant. In fact, there are 13 potential claimants to the throne, um, including several who are encouraged to make claims by Edward I, our Malleus Scotorum, Hammer of the Scots, uh, as he was later known, uh, the English king who'd been kind of lurking in the background. He's trying to muddy the waters as much as possible. The Bruces and the Balliols, who are both descendants of different granddaughters of David I, who is Alexander III's great-great-grandfather, were about to kind of tear into the kind of blood feud over the throne that kind of epitomizes Scottish politics. It's kind of the worst family feud you can imagine, but a family feud where both branches have enough military might to burn each other to the ground. Ouch. Yeah. Um, so the Guardians um, are in an incredibly tight spot, and they ask Edward I to step in and judge the claimants and judge the rightness of the claimants. So Edward I is, of course, happy to agitate. Or to um, interfere in Scottish affairs. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, because he was happy to judge the claimants if it was as the acknowledged overlord of the Kingdom of Scotland, a role that Edward was prepared to seize with the army that showed up at the border with him to judge the claimants if he failed to receive an adequate response by the 1st of June. So... The Scots kind of, and this is where reading Scottish history is a bit like kind of being a Scottish rugby fan. They kind of almost always come up to it and then just kind of collapse at the last second. <laughs> and in this case, that's what happened. The Scots capitulate. Um, each claimant to the throne swore fealty to Edward as supreme overlord. And the guardians and the great magnets all follow suit. And after a long and drawn out process, they crown John Balliol as King of Scotland, um, as being closer via primogeniture to the kingly line, um, because he 
who is the descendant of the first um, granddaughter of um, David's the first. Although it's worth noting that Balliol had an apparently kind of meek and passive nature, and that may have played a role in Edward selecting him as the new king over the uh, Bruce claimant. And this happened in November of 1292. So well, well before, um, or well after actually, any events that kind of take place at the start of Braveheart. And what happens is Edward, as overlord, for about four years, Scotland essentially gets treated as a barony of England until about March of 1296, when the Scots have pretty much had enough and they invade England. They raise and ransack the area around Carlisle. Um, Edward I, however, was prepared for this because he was already on the move. Um, heading along what's known as Eastern Invasion Route that tracks up um, the northeast coast of England into Scotland. He reached uh, Berwick on the 30th of March, and he stormed the town, harried the populace with fire and sword, and killed probably thousands of civilians. And while he's kind of consolidating his uh, position at Berwick, interestingly enough, Marjorie Common, who is... Um, the Earl of Buchan's sister and the wife of a Scottish Earl named Patrick de Dunbar, Earl mm -hmm. of March, who had held to his oath of fealty to Edward I. He wasn't aligned with the kind of Scottish rebels, but she um, opened the castle um, to Scottish forces, which allowed them to take it and kind of threaten Edward's invasion route. Um, Edward dispatched an army, which included um, uncomfortably, probably, the Earl of March to try to take back his castle from his own wife, which must have been an uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> Can you imagine the apology for that one? Yeah, the marital strife must have been fairly intense. Um, so the Scottish host uh, meets up with the English army outside Dunbar Castle, and they are decimated. Most of the nobility and magnates of Scotland are captured, the castle surrenders, and Edward basically takes control over central Scotland. Um, he brings uh, Balliol before him, the Scottish king, on the 8th of July, and he's stripped of the symbolic trappings of kingship by Edward I in a ceremony. Um, and this is where John Balliol gets the name Tomb to Bard in Scottish history, our empty coat, because Edward rips the royal arms off of his surcoat, sends uh, the crown jewels and a host of the um, instruments of Scottish statehood, including the Stone of Scone, um, back to England, and basically just removes the fiction that Scotland has any kind of sovereign crown. Um, He's at this point essentially in control of Scotland and seems pretty much poised to absorb it in the same way that he had the kind of Welsh principalities earlier in his reign. And one of the things about medieval warfare is that it's always kind of a semi-judicial undertaking and the overwhelming perception among Christendom and the kingdoms of Europe probably would have been that Edward had won through divine favor clearly kind of placing him in the right insofar as his assertion of feudal overlordship um, over Balliol and the Kingdom of Scots. So he's definitely in, the con in control, and he pretty much 
immediately moves to take advantage of that. He imposes a hefty tax for wars abroad on wool between July 1296 and May 1297, about 4.5 million pounds in modern currency. Uh, was collected in taxes on wool, which is a massive amount of money um, used to fund his foreign wars. It's a fairly oppressive tax. And he also starts um, making rumors that um, Scottish nobles and his Scottish lieges are going to have to perform military service abroad. Um, and essentially what this does, um, the taxes on middling classes and the upper classes, um, the idea that the Scottish aristocracy is now going to have to go and serve in Edward's foreign wars mean that Argyle, Ross, Fife, Galloway, Moray, and most of the northeast of Scotland were in open violence by 1297. Wow. Right, and so this is where William Wallace comes in. Exactly. This is the first time we have really any concrete references to him. And this is where the myth starts, um, and the myths of Wallace start, and this is what Braveheart kind of plays on. Um, for one thing, interestingly enough, Braveheart wasn't even William Wallace. Um, Braveheart was a term that was applied to Robert the Bruce, um, King Robert the Bruce, and he was called that by Jane Douglas in a 18th, 19th century poem. So Braveheart isn't even really Wallace, so I'm not quite sure how they arrived at that title, other than, I guess, potentially marketing. And interestingly enough, again, in the in Braveheart, Wallace is kind of portrayed as this commoner, really. He's living in a mud hut. Um, you know, he's wearing a kilt. He's seemingly always dirty. He's kind of every man, um, a common oppressed Scot who rises in open rebellion, but he wasn't an orphan as he in, is in the movie. He's also not a commoner. He was nobility. He wasn't great nobility, um, but he was definitely of the noble class. He was a son of a minor lord. He was a crown vassal. He's probably from somewhere in Ayrshire, so he's not even in the Highlands as the movie seems to like to portray, at least with the scenery. Um, he is a second son, um, so again, not great nobility, but he's definitely not a commoner. Um, he's the son of probably a gentleman named Alan Wallace, um, who signed um, the Ragman Rolls, which is basically the Ragman Rolls are a list of people who have given their oath of fealty to Edward I. And it looks like he's probably the second son of essentially, you know, a minor landholding lord. Um, we don't really know almost anything about Wallace. And this is all kind of bits and pieces that have been kind of tucked together from the few kind of sparse uh, documents. There's a letter from him um, midway through his career when he becomes um, guardian of Scotland. That's to Lubbock um, on the continent, basically saying that Scotland is open and open for business. He's got, a seal that he uses to sign that letter with, to seal that letter with. And he has the um, Scottish lion on the front of the seal, um, reflect, reflecting his status as guardian at that point. 
But on the back of the seal, it seems to be his kind of personal device. And that is a bow uh, with a finger gripping an arrow. So it's possibly that he was an archer. Um, it's also possible by this point that Wallace was already an outlaw. Um, if he is a second son and a minor landholder, the fact that his name is not on the ragman rolls would have mm-hmm. implied that he might not have sworn fealty to Edward, so he might have been immediately um, exiled and outlawed. Um, the first reference that might be to Wallace is one from August 1296, where there's a gentleman named Matthew of York who gets indicted by, interestingly enough, a woman uh, named Christina of Perth for stealing ale worth three shillings from her house in Perth on the 14th of June. And Matthew of York is supposedly in the gang of a certain thief uh, named William the Wallace, which may well be the William Wallace. And there's an odd, this is actually what it's called, uh, it's the term for it. Um, There's quite a lot of what is called fur collar crime in the 13th century at this point. I love that. Yeah. Crime. <laughs> Which is essentially these kind of uh, small landholders or potentially landless second sons of kind of minor nobility and sometimes greater nobility who basically set up roving gangs of bandits and thieves. And that's how they make their money. Um, and they're noble enough to where there's not that much pursuit of them. Um, certainly not as much as they would be if they were commoners. And some of it kind of gets looked over and it might well be that this is what William Wallace started out of out as, although there are some arguments um, that the theft of ale might be reflecting the fact that Wallace was already in exile, potentially already in revolt against Edward's overlordship. And this is basically stealing supplies for his band of freedom fighters, if you want to call it that. So what um, we can say is that we don't know a lot about William Wallace, but we know that Mel, G- Mel Gibson is full of shit. Yeah. Okay. Much. Exactly. <laughs> so um, tell so us who Andrew Moray is. So Andrew Moray is interesting um, because he is one of the leaders of these revolts in the Northeast. Um, he's the son of the Justicare of Scot- Scotia. Um, he held lordship in three lands. He was active in the North. He was a knight with a history of military service and a host of his exploits during the War of Independence. He's operating at the same time as Wallace is, just in the Northeast of Scotland, um, including an assault on Aberdeen and seizing of castles, later get assigned to Wallace. And it looks like he at least appears in the historical records to potentially be a better military commander And one of the interesting things about Wallace and his early uprisings is he's always operating in um, tandem with an older, more senior, typically higher in social status individual. So when Wallace attacks the sheriff, um, which is the first instant in the Mel Gibson film, um, he's actually operating with a knight named Richard Lunday. When he attacks um, a justice of the peace, in Scotland, he's operating with William Douglas. And in fact, at Stirling Bridge, which is where Andrew Murray and William Wallace kind of come together, he's operating as the less senior partner um, in that partnership. And it almost looks like Wallace is kind of an apprentice, um, a junior member 
um, who's learning potentially some military aspects, who's gaining some in insight into strategy, but it's not clear how much of a leadership role he actually had, or if it's just the case of because he is minor nobility, he needs the kind of political cover that these higher status individuals give him. So the Battle of Stirling is epic in the film, isn't it? It's like, and it's fully attributed or it shows William Wallace fully in there um, yeah. doing his thing. How accurate is that? And how accurate is oh. the actual, uh, you, have, you have real issues with the medieval warfare in that, don't you? Uh, yeah, uh, massive issues. I mean, the background of Stirling Bridge is, um, historically, there are some aspects um, that the film gets right, right here and there. Although the film leaves out Andrew Murray completely. Um, but essentially, Edward is in France um, in August. Um, and the uprisings of Wallace and Murray have control of almost all of Scotland north of the Firth of Forth. Basically, everything north of kind of the Glasgow-Edinburgh line seems to be in control of the Scots. And Stirling and Stirling Bridge, Stirling is often known as the cockpit of battles because it's a linchpin of the north. It's really the only way to move from southern Scotland into northern Scotland across uh, the bridge over the Forth. And essentially what happens is um, John de Waring, who's the Earl of Surrey, and Hugh de Cressingham, who is the treasurer of Scotland, um, move up with English forces to try to basically crush the uprising. They've probably got about 350 cavalry, probably around about 6,000 infantry. The Scots probably have about 180 uh, cavalry troopers and kind of light horsemen with about 6,000 infantry. And it's a bridge crossing. It's a battle that's fought when the English army crosses bridge. And if you notice um, in Braveheart, there's not a bridge to be seen anywhere in sight. Nope. Just a load of pasty white guys doing the moon. That's that one, right? Yep, exactly. Um, teasing them to attack. And Braveheart also has this, I mean, it's not necessarily their fault. It's a common trope in kind of medieval warfare that the heavy cavalry is all. Um, the knight and his charger is the be-all and end-all in medieval warfare. That's how you win battles. Um, Braveheart handles that with a kind of fairly ridiculous solution of the stupid pine tree spears that they make. <laughs> um, cutting down in the forest, which, I mean, it's problematic in a host of ways. One of the ways, reasons it's ridiculous is... At the time, if you were levied into the army of Scotland, um, if you owned property that was worth a cow, basically, you were required to show up for the levy with a spear or a bow and 24 arrows. So it's not like they didn't know what spears were. And it's not like they didn't have spears in their possession, which they were required to have by law. Um, if you owned a bit more property, um, around about 12,000 pounds in today's uh, value, the property, you were required to show up with a spear, a sword, and a hackathon or a coat of iron. Um, so again, this kind of picture in Braveheart of these kind of poorly equipped, uh, basically peasants with a bunch of kind of pitchforks and um, agricultural implements and spears made out of pine trees is fairly, fairly ridiculous um, in many, many ways. And I could spend hours talking about 
the problems with asserting that heavy cavalry is what won the day. But essentially, the battle at Sterling isn't doesn't have any real heavy cavalry charges. Um, it's the English force that crosses a bridge. The Scots wait until a large percentage of the English force is across the bridge, and then they basically pour down off the high ground. They pin the English forces that are over the bridge and start slaughtering them because they get backed up against the forces that are already on the bridge. The whole thing basically disintegrates. Um, the English get not necessarily slaughtered. They don't actually lose that too many men, but it's a bit of a blow to English morale because it's the first time that a feudal army has really been beaten essentially by a non-feudal levy. Um, people that the English essentially see as kind of brigands. So they get some of that sense right in the movie, but just the whole way it's carried out doesn't line up at all with historical narrative. And essentially the English army gets beaten not so much because Wallace was a military genius, genius but because they were idiots. I mean, you never <laughs> tried to cross the bridge with an army in full view of an enemy force. Unless you're a more Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. On. Exactly. Yeah. So Cressingham, um, for his sins, um, it's alleged that the Scots skin him. There's a legend that William Wallace took a strip from his heel to his neck and fashioned it into a baldric for his sword, although that's probably likely more of this kind of mythos. It's going to be like trying to peel an orange without it breaking. Yeah. Yeah, probably. And it also does, I will say that there is a tendency for uh, the English sources to very much kind of portray Wallace as this kind of bloodthirsty brigand. Mm. So it kind of ties into that, but it is worth noting as well that Cressingham, as the treasurer, was the person that was responsible for levying a host of these taxes. So he probably was, as all taxmen are, fairly roundly disliked. There may, there may be some truth to kind of at least the feeling of the Scots when he was killed. Then the film moves on to Falkirk. Yeah. You get even more pissed off. <laughs> what is Falkirk? You guys it's have a place in Scotland. No, 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 but Alex has mentioned this before, so I need to know more about this. So Falkirk is basically um, where Edward comes back from France in March of 1297. Um, 
he is not happy. Um, he's incredibly unhappy that essentially his holding his um, control over Scotland is basically all gone away due to his kind of ineffective um, lieutenants and Wallace's uprising. So he raises an army um, in June. By July, he's in Scotland heading up the west east coast to Edinburgh and then heading west. And Wallace is now facing a full feudal army um, with large amounts of heavy cavalry, large amounts of archers, and large amounts of foot soldiers. It's a force that he probably has no real chance or shouldn't have any chance of meeting in the field. And at first, he seems to do the correct thing. He burns everything in front of him. He starts pulling back um, into the kind of wilds of Scotland. But Edward catches up to him at Falkirk. Falkirk. And Falkirk is where Wallace is decimated. Um, he pulls his forces up on a ridge. Um, he has not a whole lot of cavalry, um, mainly infantry with some archers, but it lacks any kind of signs of tactical acumen. Uh, the best thing that he could possibly have done was retreated. It's not quite clear why he doesn't do that. And essentially, at first, um, there's some signs of um, hope on the horizon. The English make a host of uh, cavalry charges against the Scottish spearmen who are in formation, and they're repulsed um, fairly handily uh, because heavy cavalry can't break through disciplined infantry. That changes, however, when Edward brings up um, his English archers and Welsh archers, and longbowmen and archery basically starts to decimate um, the Scottish spearmen. And as soon as they start having men fall and cracks open up in the formations, the heavy cavalry basically pours into them and wipes them out. Um, a large proportion of the Scottish army, we don't actually know concrete numbers, but it seems like quite a lot of them are killed on the field at Falkirk. And it definitely seems that it affects the ability of any Scottish resistance to rise anything like a fully functioning field army for probably a about seven years, if not more. It's a horrible tactical decision. He pulls him up in a ridge with no cover whatsoever from archery, and as soon as those archers move up, the game is basically over. What a douche. Yeah. Um, it, <laughs> and this kind of ties into the Andre, Andrew Murray thing. Um, Andrew Murray actually dies of wounds that he got at Sterling in November, of that same year. So he's not around for Falkirk. And it seems as though, at least my opinion is that Wallace's military genius might be overstated in the legends that he essentially kind of got lucky. He became kind of a symbol of popular uprising, but when it came to an open field battle that requires some kind of tactical acumen and some kind of understanding of the dangers of a combined, um, arms medieval army that had infantry and archery and uh, heavy cavalry that he didn't really contemplate well enough how to counter things like archery. Because again, infantry is fine standing up against heavy cavalry. It can stand there and it can do it all day long until you have missile troops, crossbowmen, or longbowmen who can break open those formations. And once those formations get broken open, there's nothing stopping a heavy cavalry charge from coming through. Wow. Um, 
<laughs> the next the next point on your you basically before we started this gave me a list of things that piss you off about Braveheart. Uh, the next one you've just put where's Wally? Yeah, uh, essentially, yeah. After Falkirk, Wallace disappears. Um, he resigns his guardianship because once he's lost at Falkirk, all his kind of political goodwill that he's built up with the Scottish magnates, his reputation as a military leader which is what his leadership seems to be predominantly based off of, disappears. Um, the guardianship passes to John Common and Robert the Bruce, who are both rivals. And then Wallace seemingly leaves Scotland in 1299. It's possible that he went to the continent. Um, we think he's probably in France at the French court. It looks like he is trying to help the cause. He's trying to kind of raise um, foreign support for the Scottish cause to resist Edward. He may have visited Rome, which is one of the few things that the film does get right. It seems that Wallace may have actually been multilingual. Um, he may have spoken um, at least some French and maybe some Latin, although it's not kind of clear how much because all the letters that we have for him are written um, by a clerk. Uh, but he has some kind of worldly acumen, which does kind of, again, point to him being nobility as opposed to a commoner. Um, and then, he, yeah, he basically just vanishes from the scene until about thirteen, mid-1303, mid-1304. Is he, he not off impregnating the Princess of Wales? <laughs> that, uh, yeah, that is also where it gets interesting. That's one of the really... Uh, creepy bits of that film with many creepy bits is that <laughs> Isabella of France at this time um, is, well, she, let's see by 1305, which is when Wallace gets executed. She is 10. Ooh. So he, yeah, that's, yeah. Ooh, so at the that's time, a whole level of yuck. Yeah. At the time that he's supposed to be romancing her, she is. Yeah. It, yeah. It reaches a whole kind of, creepiness um that but it kind of ties into this idea of of the film of this kind of romantic idea um which is kind of driven it's just throughout. an excuse for mel gibson to lech on someone isn't it yeah. quite possibly i mean because even the whole story about him attacking the sheriff of lanark which kicks off the whole revolt um there's no real evidence that it was over a woman um, there's no real evidence that the character of, I can't remember her name in the film, uh, but the wife. Marin, isn't it? Yeah, Marin. Um, it's based it's off of a character in a 15th century poem by Blind Harry, um, which is where most of the Wallace myths come from. And most of the story of Braveheart comes from. Um, that calls her Murray and Braidfoot. But there's no real evidence in the historical record of her existence. Uh, there's certainly no mention of her in contemporary accounts of what prompts him attacking the sheriff so again it's there's lots of yeah yeah lots of room for kind of mel gibson to basically lech on i guess you know Ew. female actresses um it's a the whole isabella thing is a weird bit anyway um but yeah so Nobody knows what he's doing, uh, but at least we can say that historically um, he's not putting the moves on a 10-year-old. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, you would hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, he's back in Scotland um, from the continent by about mid-1303 and 1304. He's again falling back into what worked for him. And what did actually work for Wallace very well was guerrilla warfare. 
asymmetric warfare with light skirmishes. He's coming out of forests. He's attacking kind of English troops and English supply lines. And he's kind of proved he's no good at the big standing battle thing, hasn't he? Exactly. (laughs) Without Murray there to do it for him. Yeah, at least, yeah, let's leave that alone and kind of go back to what works. Um, The problem for Wallace is um, the common family um, who are the nephew. One of them is the current guardian is the nephew of John Balliol, the disposed king. Um, seem not to particularly like Wallace all that much. And by the time Wallace comes back, John Coleman uh, is the sole guardian of Scotland. And most of the community of the realm of Scotland, including Common, have sued for peace um, from Edward. So the only outstanding rebel at this point is Wallace. And Wallace was deliberately excluded from all of the peace negotiations and denied any chance to kind of come into the king's peace um, because clearly Edward is on some level personally pissed off at him, which is kind of par for the course for Edward I. I mean, Edward I is the epitome of a medieval king in a many, many different ways. Um, but he does have a capricious streak he also has a violent streak and he also has a very vengeful streak against people that he perceives as wronging him. And in Mm -hmm. his view, Wallace was a direct threat to his crown and the authority of his kingship. So Wallace gets declared an outlaw under Scottish law and he's hunted down. Um, he's taken at a place known as Rob Royston in what is now Glasgow in August 1305. About 20 days later, he gets taken to Smithfield, um, where, quote, for acting as though king in Scotland and for his other felonies against the king, seeking his death, he was drawn to the place of execution. For his robberies, homicides, and felonies, he was hanged and disemboweled. Um, interestingly enough, for Mel Gibson's torture fetish. We'll call it torture fetish because all of the films <laughs> kind of have a torture fetish. Um, Braveheart, um, The Patriot, um, Apocalypto, they all have this kind of weird, lots of kind of sadomasochism stuff in there. Wallace wasn't just hanged and disemboweled. In the historical record, he was emasculated. Um, not castrated, all of his bits were cut off. So that, I love that. So Mel Gibson has a torture fetish, but the one thing he will not have done to him on screen by an Englishman is having his knob cut off. That's where he draws the line. Apparently. That's just gross. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, um, yeah. So emasculated. Um, as an outlaw, he was beheaded. And interestingly, for his injuries to the church caused by blasphemous faults arising from his bowels, which in the kind of medieval sense of medicine and kind of where thoughts arise, um, his entrails were burned. And then his head was displayed on, in London and his body was quartered and a part displayed on the gibbet at Newcastle, uh, in Berwick, in Stirling, and in Edinburgh. And that is Wallace's end. And that is the summary of pretty much what we know from the historical sources. I mean, that's one of the issues with Braveheart is it's all based, almost all based with quite a lot of uh, license on this um, ode written by 
Blind Harry in about the kind of 1470s, 1480s, centuries after um, Wallace, that builds him up into this kind of Scottish independence fighter and superhero. One thing then it doesn't do is give the right man the credit, doesn't it? So tell us what happens afterwards with Robert the Bruce. So after Wallace is executed, Edward clearly thinks that he's pretty much um, settled. Wallace is gone. Um, the rest of Scotland has kind of come into the peace. Robert immediately, almost immediately, in about 1306, starts his own rising. And it is interesting that Wallace, um, rather Bruce, seems to have learned a little bit from Wallace. He starts as basically guerrilla tactics, guerrilla fights. One of the interesting things about Bruce, as opposed to Wallace, is Bruce seems to learn from his failures. So one of the first battles Bruce fights is the Battle of Methven. Um, and he, um, to his detriment, um, listens to um, the English line where basically they meet up and they say, all right, you know, we'll have a battle at this date at this time on the next day. We'll meet up on the field of battle and we'll settle it honorably. He takes the English at their word um, and they attack his camp in the night. He loses a host of followers. He is almost captured himself. And then he kind of goes back into hiding and goes back into guerrilla warfare. But he also learns from that, from the Battle of Methven until um, a few, with a few exceptions like Loudon Hill and finally Bannockburn, Bruce adamantly and intentionally refuses to give battle in an open field to English forces. Um, he destroys their strong points. He attacks their supply lines. He pulls castles down. He erodes English control until he finally, for some reason that we're not entirely sure of, decides to give battle at Bannockburn. And that's when he crushes the army of Edward II. And that is when Wallace's dream of a sovereign Scotland, not necessarily a free Scotland, but a sovereign Scotland with a sovereign crown um, comes into fruition. Although, again, it's part of this whole kind of political battle between English magnates because Bruce is seen by many of the people who supported Wallace as a usurper because he's taken the throne from the descendant, the son of uh, John Balliol, Edward, who is considered by many to be the heir to the throne. But he's far more effective at fighting the English and fighting the English in the few open field battles than Wallace ever was. What has the impact of Braveheart been? That, I mean, that Bad. Is, yeah, yeah well, that's, it's one of the interesting things. Um, for a incredibly horrible ahistorical film that has kicked off, I don't know, let's see, it's been, what, almost 25 years since it aired, mm -hmm. since it came out. It's fed into, I mean, all kinds of myths about Scotland and Scottish history um, that are florid on the internet and Twitter, um, almost anywhere you can find them. But when it came out, Scotland somewhat surprisingly loved it. Um, Tom Horn, um, who's been on your podcast before, was telling mm -hmm. me when we were talking about this that he remembers being in a thousand seat cinema when it was one of the last ones kind of uh, when they were still about in Glasgow. I know and the one he means. <laughs> yeah. And apparently people at the end of the film stood up and applauded it. 
although Billy Connolly did call it uh, quote pure Australian shite. So <laughs> it wasn't kind of universally well received. Um, but in terms of kind of economic impacts, the tourist trade for Scotland quadrupled after Braveheart, even though it was again, shot in Ireland as opposed to Scotland. So you're not even really seeing Scotland in the film, but um, the tourist trade increased. Um, it brought a lot more people into Scotland. You could arguably say that maybe those tourists coming into Scotland and seeing historic sites maybe got their picture of Braveheart corrected to a certain extent. Um, mm. You'd have to kind of look at hard data receptions about that. It also coincided with growing support for home rule in Scotland. Um, it's tough to say really how much it contributed, but Braveheart came out in 95. Um, 1997 was the overwhelming vote for a Scottish parliament. And I think reading around um, some of the people that have written about it, it seems like some of the support for Braveheart and the interest in Braveheart was the nature of how Scottish history had been taught in schools, which seemed to be essentially that Wallace and Bruce were never really mentioned. There was very little Scottish history taught in Scottish schools up to that point. So seeing kind of a hero from your modern nation, from your past that you never really learned much about was probably fairly empowering um, mm. fairly interesting to see somebody that you've never been taught about suddenly splashed across the screen as this larger than life, uh, freedom fighter, um, hero, which is certainly how, um, later chroniclers had portrayed Wallace. Um, is Wallace nationalism? It's kind of tough to argue. Um, he has in the history of Scottish politics, going back to the 1900s, he's weirdly been used by both unionists and nationalists to promote uh, their political aims. Um, there's always uh, the great quote uh, from Hobsbawm that talks about how um, history is uh, basically the poppies of nationalism, um, that it's always a kind of a fertile field to hang um, those ideas own, but I would say that we shouldn't probably really be casting medieval struggles in the sense of a sense of a national story are a nationalist ideals anyway. Mm -hmm. Scotland itself at the time of Wallace's rising had only kind of recently been consolidated under royal control. Um, the great earldoms of Scotland like Moray and Galloway and the Kingdom of Isles had almost been kind of kingdoms in their own right. Um, with enough manpower and authority to, in many cases, uh, challenge the crown. Um, part of the reason the commons became so powerful as a royal family is because they were used by the crown of Scotland, by Alexander III's forebears, to put down the power of some of these great earldoms like Moray and basically bring them under the control of the crown. So the War of Independence wasn't independence in the modern sense. It was an independence of the crown, uh, the sovereignty of the community of the realm of Scotland from overlordship by the English throne. And Wallace, even Wallace in his writings and in his political maneuvers, made it very, very clear that he was a Balliol supporter through and through. He wanted to see John Balliol restored to his rightful 
throne, and he made it quite clear that that's why he was operating. Um, so I'm always hesitant of kind of <clears throat> attempts to kind of tie things like medieval history into kind of nationalist trends. Um, there's kind of bits and pieces of elements there. There is a sense of kind of an independent Scotland um, free of overlordship, but it's not Scotland's people that are independent. It's the crown and the sovereignty of the crown of Scotland that is independent. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on and trying to basically straighten out the clusterfuck of Braveheart. Um, and put some historical context on it and tell us actually what really was going on because I had no clue about much of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a fascinating period. It's one of the reasons why I like doing the PhD. It's also incredibly uh, complex and often frustrating um, because it the history of Scotland is the history of conflict, um, which is part of why I got into it as a conflict archaeologist. Um, but yeah, it's endlessly fascinating. And I think the the story of Wallace, the historical um, aspects of Wallace are probably far more interesting than as a man, as a person, uh, than the Braveheart story. But that's just my perspective. Brilliant. It's so well put as well. Totally vindicated an American coming on to talk about Scottish history because you clearly know your stuff. <laughs> Thank you. And who doesn't love a bit of medieval warfare at the end of the day? It is exciting and it is fun. And no wonder it swept up your imagination. Absolutely. Um, it's what one medieval warfare was, was and has been one of my great passions. So I always enjoy the chance to talk about it. And I always enjoy the chance to kind of push back against Hollywood medievalisms and Hollywood interpretations of medieval warfare because they obscure, I think, some of the most interesting aspects of it. Join us tomorrow for Pole Position when we will be talking all about the Katyn Massacre. We've had a lot of requests for this one. Uh, we wanted to do it right. We'll be talking to Olivia Alford, who has given us an excellent rundown, a very in-depth and poignant talk. You can also tune in for Breeze Barrington will be with us to talk all about 16th and 17th century female artists. Brilliant chat. Don't miss it. And stay tuned because soon we will be bringing you a special week of programmes on African-American history. The ripple effect of what happens to George Floyd has gripped the world. And we've taken our time with this, but we felt it was important to try and put those events in perspective and not only talk about how America came to be at this point, it is at now, this crucial point, but also why. We've interviewed some fantastic historians. There's some poignant, inspirational and utterly tragic material in some of these podcasts. It's been a highly emotional ride recording them and we're really looking forward to sharing them with you as well. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. 
And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.